you are listening to CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, Ontario. This is The Scoop. I'm Dinah Jansen. On January 7th, 2021, provincial health officials, doctors David Williams and Dirk Heyer spoke from Queen's Park. They have announced that elementary schools will not reopen on January 11th, 2020 as planned prior to the December 26th province-wide lockdown. The province will defer reopening in-person classes for an additional two weeks in southern Ontario. Virtual classes will remain in effect. Williams noted during question period that in spite of the lockdown, cases across the province are still on the rise. On Thursday, Ontario reported 3,519 new coronavirus cases and 89 more deaths. York, Peel and Toronto currently make up 54% of cases, a drop from the 70th percentile, indicating that the coronavirus cases in areas outside of these centres are now on the rise. Williams further stated that as a result of this rise, health units and hospitals across the province are experiencing capacity strain. Williams also stated Northern Ontario numbers have also gone up and thus Northern Health Units will remain in lockdown until the 23rd of January. He also stated that there are six known cases of the UK variant of the coronavirus in the province. Kingston Frontenac Lennox and Addington Public Health has asked parents to monitor their children for symptoms of COVID-19 before they return to school and if they do develop symptoms, parents should take their children to be tested. Parents can find a full list of symptoms at the KFLNA website. On January 7, 2021, Kingston reported 13 new cases of coronavirus with a total of 56 active cases. During the lockdown, KFLNA Public Health reminds residents that restrictions on indoor gatherings do remain in effect and household members should not visit people outside of their home or allow non-essential visitors in their home at this time. At the national level, the federal government announced on January 6th that effective midnight Eastern Standard Time on January 7th, 2021, air travelers five years of age or older are now required to provide proof of a negative COVID-19 molecular test result conducted within 72 hours of departure to the airline prior to boarding international flights bound for Canada, regardless of citizenship. Everyone entering Canada must follow mandatory isolation or quarantine requirements for 14 days and not respecting the mandatory requirements is considered a serious offence with consequences and penalties. We're now going to cut into the announcement by Drs. David Williams and Dirk Heyer from Queen's Park, followed by a question period from the press. Right. Good afternoon, everyone. And... uh, So it's Thursday and we're looking back at how the week is going and what we're looking at the weekend coming up. So I have some comments to make in a number of areas regard to that. I'm pleased to be joined today by uh, Dr. Dirk Heyer, our Chief uh, Coroner for Ontario, and he's also the coordinator of the Provincial Outbreak Response. And furthermore, he's also on the uh, COVID-19 Vaccine Distribution Task Force. So I'll be making some comments and then I'll ask Dr. Heyer to add his at the end before we go to the media for questions. So this has been a significant uh, week for us as we look at the data and information that we spoke about on Monday. Uh, Besides the surpassing 200,000 confirmed COVID cases in Ontario since the pandemic began, uh, we're also noting that today is our highest in a single day with 3,519 cases reported. We were hoping that by now we will start to see those numbers coming down. And in fact, it's going the other way. We also noted that unfortunately, uh, that uh, we have recorded our highest number of deaths in a single day, 89. And while our models had said we would see that occurring, uh, we did not want to see it going up that soon, that high. And that's unfortunate because they're not just numbers, they, indiv- they represent uh, family members, uh, whether uh, parents, grandparents, sisters, brothers, etc. So there's significant losses to the family. And of course, we continue to express our condolences to them and our thoughts are with them. Uh, we also are seeing, <clears throat> unfortunately, record numbers in our hospitals. And you've heard much in the media about that, with hospital services talking about uh, being stretched, and especially in our areas of largest numbers, and I'll talk about that in a moment, with 1,472 people in hospital, and our ICU number is now up today up to 373. And as you know, that's well above what our models were talking about a week or so, two weeks ago, about being over the 350 mark, where you're going to start to see impacts on cancellation of other elective procedures, and indeed, in areas of highest uptake, we're seeing those cases being cancelled and deferred. And that is unfortunate because we were hoping that through the lockdown we're going to start to see some numbers come down. 
as always, a lot of our cases are concentrated in our biggest areas, York, Peel, and Toronto. Um, and they, in the past, would have made up 70 to 80% of our cases. Today, they're making up 54%. And that's even concerning because that means a lot of areas outside of those have gone up extensively. And such that in the, as we look at the data across our area, uh, we have, we used to have about six or eight in our so-called gray lockdown zone. If we use the same metric, uh, we'd have now about 14 in that category. And we have in the past number in the green zone right now, as of on the New Year's um, period between Christmas and New Year's, we have only one remaining in green zone. And so a number of the areas, even out in the north, have gone up and are accruing cases beyond what they usually have been experienced in the fall. So this is a challenge we have ahead of us. And so what are we going to do with that? We're looking at the number of cases um, <clears throat> in our regions, many over 200. We have one in our Windsor-Essex with over 300, and that has gone up. We had some that were very low before uh, that through to an event, even during the lockdown period, uh, where all of a sudden with a super spreader, they go from slightly above green to yellow and all of a sudden going right up to above that. And maybe Dr. Hiro will comment on that in his context of outbreak. So these things can flare up very fast and they don't go away very quickly. They continue to escalate and move through the community. And so where you're coasting with a few cases, you now have a lot of case contact management to undertake. In the past, where we looked at their Ontario average per 100,000, <clears> or the, I would say, November, December, we were seeing that rate per 100,000 go up by about five each week, so that before the Christmas break and before the lockdown, we had 106 per 100,000. Uh, now, in the week just before New Year's, the last one, we've gone up to 129.8 per 100,000 in the one week. And that's a 23% increase. That's very concerning. And we look at that, how that was impacting on the time before Christmas as everybody, I would say, unfortunately, with information I'm receiving, a number of them were setting aside uh, the principles of public health protection and uh, being very casual about that, getting in congregate settings, groups, without masking, without distancing, and assuming that things are going to be okay. And now we're seeing many, many more people coming forward and getting tested. And our testing rates, even on New Year's Day, was up to 70,000, over 70,000, one of our highest on record. So we're not dealing with small tests with high percent positivity. We're dealing with large numbers with high percent positivity, up to as high as 9.7, 9.8%, which we had not seen since the first wave. And then we're dealing with a very small number of test cases in there. So we're dealing with large numbers, large percent, large number of cases being reported, and the larger the cases are, the more percent of those go to the hospital and the more those end up in the ICU. And in time, unfortunately, the more that will impact long-term care facilities and also impact our deaths as they, they tend to be delayed. And perhaps Dr. Harrell want to comment on that further. <clears throat> At the same time, that puts a strain on our health units with case contact management. It puts a strain on our hospitals, which I've alluded to already, that are now uh, pressing the limit on a number of areas around their ICU admissions, as well as canceling elective surgeries in and around the area, not just in Toronto now. We're spreading out through large parts of southern Ontario. So what does that mean? <clears throat> we have looked at the data carefully. We have had consultations. We looked at our northern Ontario data. And as you recall, when we announced the lockdown, we were going to consider reviewing the Northern Ontario and whether we would have them come out of lockdown uh, after two weeks, which would be this weekend. And as I said, our numbers there, where they had a whole bunch in green, now there's only one left in green. And there's one of our smaller ones is in the second week in the red zone. So their numbers have gone up. We had a teleconference and consultation with the seven Northern Medical Officer Health, and all were adamant they need to stay in lockdown. And they said their municipal leadership was feeling the same way. So as a result, we made that recommendation, and that has been ratified. So the northern health units will stay with the rest of the province in lockdown until the 23rd of January. But of course, we're going to continue looking at our data and information there, because now we should be coming out of the pre-Christmas, pre-Boxing Day lockdown time and seeing if we're having any impact if people have uh, hunkered down in a way and decided to adhere to the uh, public health measures to reduce contact with other people in there because besides the uh, aspect of um, the cases going up, we also have now the advent of the uh, UK variant. And uh, maybe Dr. Hiro want to comment on that, but we have detected six thus far, uh, mostly related to travel, 
We are looking for it. We are trying to assess it and determine it better. But that means we have to put our guard up even further because the data information shows that it's wide transmission, very much easier communicability, and that has great impacts, as we've seen in other countries such as the UK and the Netherlands. So <clears throat> we have done that. Furthermore, um, as we said in the past and have been lots of consultation with the Ministry of Education and with Minister Lecce, and um, we have looked at the data there. We are concerned in the fact that we had a very successful fall. In spite of um, lots of predictions to the opposite where people said due to cases and outbreaks, we'd be lucky if we stayed open until Thanksgiving. We stayed open all the way, right through until Christmas in, in class attendance. Why? One is that we didn't go with the pretense that nothing would happen. We went with the pretense that things would happen, that cases would show up at the schools. We added a number of checks and balances in there, IPAC principles, IPAC training, uh, cohorting, masking, distancing, all the way through and talking to the parents. We added public health nurses uh, to the school system in that. And yes, we did see a lot of cases showing up at the schools. They arrived, they were sent home, they were followed up. We kept the outbreaks in the uh, schools down to a limited amount. There was not a lot of extensive evidence of transmission in the schools, hardly any at all. We had a little bit in Windsor just before Christmas, and uh, we know that's a concern to the medical officer there, and he has made it clear that he's going to keep the schools out of in-class attendance at this time, keep it virtual at least for the next two weeks uh, beyond the 11th of January. So we looked at that and that information there. We know that with our modeling data and different information, we hope to update you on that in the near future. It is uh, looking concerning very much uh, in there. Our community transmission is the highest ever. Uh, at that time, we had hoped to be down. And before we went into Christmas, let's go back and say, in the fall when we opened up the schools, we said, we're doing okay. We're only having two to 300 cases a day in the province. Two to 300 cases a day. That seems like a long time ago. And before Christmas, we said, well, we're struggling. We're having 17, 1,800 a day. We were very concerned about that. We need a lockdown and bring it down. And some said, well, I'm not sure that's necessary because it's probably going to come down. It didn't come down. Now we're looking at every day over 3,000 and 3,500 a day. I'm concerned we may jump up to 4,000. That means we have a large amount of community transmission. With that in mind, we have uh, really sat down seriously looking at that. Why? Um, in our province, long-term cares are very important. We've put a number of steps in there to protect that. We're looking at our schools, and we feel our schools are necessary and a vital requirement for the development and mental health and other aspects of our children. We have listened to the experts from various centers, including the hospital for sick children. And we had a consultation on medical officer health, especially in southern Ontario. They're very strong saying, at this moment, we should not open up in class as at this time. We should be careful. Can we defer that for another week or two till we look at the data? And can we put other things in place to add further protection around our schools from the high levels of community transmission? We're not talking about 3 or 4% in the community. We're talking at least 7, going up to 20 to 30% in some areas. That means there's people coming to the school, either students or uh, some staff. We're going to have to be very stringent on how we uh, survey that, monitor that, and document that, and making sure all those checks and balances because... In talking to our medical officers of health in the South Ontario, they say the schools are too important to have open and close and open and close. That would be very perplexing. Can we delay a week or two in class attendance and then open up because we want to stay open and we want to stay open on a permanent basis there for the rest of the school year, um, March break um, permitting, of course. And so with that, we are asked and we are going to ask in the Southern Ontario that uh, instead of opening up to in-class on the 11th, and I know this is a tough one. It's tough for everybody. And we know those parents have worked hard at this, and having the virtual learning is not easy. But at the same time, I've had lots of correspondence, and I would say I open up one or lead one and says, don't be crazy, keep the schools closed. Or another one says, don't be crazy, open up the schools. People are caught between the two. They see the value and the need of the schools open. Some are desperate to have the schools open for in-class attendance. And some are saying, I'm too worried. I, I probably won't send my children to school. So we want to make sure we put those things in place so that when we do open, all the checks and balances and further things that we're trying to develop right now in the next week and a half. So that's why we're deferring in-class attendance, not closing schools. 
for another two weeks in Southern Ontario so we can get these other things in place in consultation with the Ministry of Education, with Minister Lecce, and between Minister Lecce and Minister Elliott so we can ensure that's going to take place. Why? Because schools are that important. And we do not want to let the current high levels of community transmission, which is very disappointing, and one we have to really work hard at getting down, because you can see it's impacting our most valued resources. It's impacting our long-term care homes. We put all sorts of checks and balances. It's impacting our healthcare system. Uh, and it's gonna compromise that. And it's impacting our school attendance at this time. And so we have to pull that back down and get it under control. So with much reluctance, I have asked and, and, and agreed by the, uh, the Premier and Cabinet and the Ministers to say, okay, we will defer opening in Southern Ontario. Northern Ontario can open for in-class attendance because their community rates are, at this time, low. Not insignificant, but there's still concerns. That's why we're keeping them in lockdown because they want to keep them in lockdown to keep their schools open. Why are we saying Northern Ontario? Because not only do they have lower rates, but because of the geography in that, they have less infrastructure for virtual learning. And we understand that sensitivity. While we're saying to, to hold and delay the opening of the schools, I've asked the uh, Deputy Minister, besides being available for essential workers, that's childcare, and to make sure that those emergency workers have that, because of course a lot of our essential workers are mothers, are very concerned about that, and how do we make sure they have a safe place to have their children while they're there, to have school-aged children to be there in those care at that time, and to say, are there other special needs that we should be aware of and allowing boards of education to look at those aspects there. So we're attentive to the community spread and impact on schools. We're attentive to the need to get the schools open. We're attentive to the fact there's very uh, specific needs that right now are there that boards of education know, teachers know that they want to be uh, accessible to. So we're trying to get the right balance here to ask for a uh, saying we're going to have a deferral of the opening for two weeks while we get these other things in place because we want the schools open and we want them to stay open. So those are the main things I wanted to comment on this at this time. And with that, I'm going to, before we go to the media, I'm going to ask Dr. Heyer if he has any further comments to make in respect of his area's responsibility. Thank you very much. Dr. Williams, good afternoon, everybody. You know, it's a sad day. Highest number of cases that we've ever reported. Highest number of deaths that we've ever reported. 22 out of 34 public health units has more than 10 cases. We have the hospitals who are struggling with intensive care unit, with patients being admitted to, the, to their hospitals, with outbreaks occurring throughout their hospitals, overcapacity as far as their ability to provide the care in many situations. We have public health units who aren't able to do all of the work that they are experts at doing and that they are trying to keep track of and trying to work on as hard as they can, doing the best that they can. They are still leading this response in, in, a, in a wonderful way, but still incredibly overcapacitated. All of this is very distressing and very sad. Schools are not being reopened. We remain in lockdown across the province. All in all, many, many factors that point to how devastating this illness is and how all of us need to work together to take all of the proper steps in a way to reduce transmission, eliminate in all ways possible uh, the, the fact that COVID is spreading through and responding to that in, in our best way possible. On that, I think I'll pass over to Alex and, uh, and open for questions. We'll go to the phone lines. Just a reminder, one question, one follow-up. Over to the first question, please. Your first question comes from Christina Tenalia with CP24. Please go ahead. Hi there, Dr. Williams and Dr. Heyer. Thank you so much for taking my question here uh, about this, just getting my audio uh, back together here. I wanted to ask you about uh, some of the comments you just made and how you noted that you're deferring and closing schools. Um, Dr. Williams, you noted that there's a large amount of community transmission. You don't want that transmission to get more out of control. And you even noted that your anticipation, the modeling, the suggestion is it could hit 4,000 cases a day soon. So why only two weeks in terms of a closure? And I recognize that it has been well documented and reported the benefits of having kids in class. But parents, teachers, students want certainty. Yes, well, thank you for that question. And <clears throat> as you may recall when we talked about it before, that while we were closing for the Christmas break, um, seasonal break, 
uh, New Year's, etc. We had wanted the week of the 4th of January to be virtual in attendance because we wanted to see what the data looked like near the end of the fourth, uh, that week of the 4th of January, this week. <clears throat> to see if indeed did our numbers stay the same before as they were pre-Christmas, pre-holiday. And in fact, where they're coming down with some effects of the lockdown, the message around that even prior to lockdown, uh, people to be very careful and cautious during the various festive seasons uh, in that. <clears throat> and so here we are in the week of the 4th of January, and uh, that number didn't come down because we said if it did stay down and came down even further, let's open up the classes to in-class attendance. So we've seen that. Therefore, in that light of that, our methods that we put in place before in the fall, I think in my mind and opinion, have to be enhanced, especially around areas of surveillance and monitoring and promptness and readiness to assess those things on a very acute basis because instead of having just one or two children coming once in a while to the schools, we may have quite a few coming to the schools. And at the same time, we want to make sure we're attentive to keep looking to make sure there's no evidence of the so-called UK variant. And we're looking at different systems of how to put that in place to monitor that. Because as you may have heard in various media reports, it's higher transmissibility. And they say also more in children. It was concerning to me in some of the data by ICES over the holiday season with testing, where we were seen with less than 3% in children attending schools, elementary I'm referring to here. Uh, rates in those have been now 5 6 or 7% while they're not in school. So that's concerning. So we're going to have to get a lot better at that and put other things in balance. And so we're working with the Ministry of Education to say, in light of this, what are the further steps to put walls around our schools to protect and monitor that? So we're working hard at that right now. And we only have a week or so, a week and a half to get it all ready to go. And these are not simple things you just turn the switch on. You have to put a lot of things in place and we're working at that right at this time. Uh, but Dr. Williams, in terms of what you're going to be putting in place, I mean, is that long-term, can parents anticipate a further extension of online learning? I mean, this is Thursday here. Parents are learning that on Monday, once again, students, this will be an extension of their online learning period. Parents are left scrambling. They want certainty. At what point is it that there will be another extension to this? And also considering that the, the, vac- the COVID-19 vaccine is not recommended for children. So what's the long-term solution here? I'm going to ask Dr. Hire in a moment to comment about vaccine and its role in play in that. You make a very good point on that. Uh, what I'm saying is that by the methods here, we could have said, so let's just go ahead and hope for the best. We want to put some more things in place because uh, I know <clears throat> I... Our, my uh, fellow MOHs around the province, the Minister of Education and the Ministry of Education are saying uh, we will defer in-class attendance for two weeks. We definitely would like to open up on that time and we want to put those things in place. So rather than just saying in light of the higher community spread, let's open as we did in the fall and hope for the best. I'm not satisfied that. I want to put some more steps and protection in place. So when we do open up in two weeks, uh, we want to do that. And so we're trying to drive the parents towards saying, let's say we're just, we are deferring for two weeks. <clears throat> I mean, two weeks, if everything all goes wild, and we go up to six to 10,000 cases, we might be in a whole different situation. I'm assuming with the direction that we're going, people do what they need to do. Step back, be careful, do not transmit, do not encounter things, limit your travel, household, masking, all those things we said before, you really have to drive hard at. In this time too, besides what we're doing to protect the children, you can do your part. That means parents who have children, if you were casual over the holidays, get serious now. Limit those contacts and those issues there, especially related to travelers and aspects there, because you have this period to get that out of the system. And so you're you're doing your part to say, if my children are going to attend the school, they have not been in any contact with anyone of any concern in the last four days. Either of I as a parent or parents or caregivers, we have been careful. We're ready for that. Teachers preparing, custodial staff, administrative staff, some are already back in doing some special ed programs now. So this is all getting prepared up and getting refocused because we're going to have to really do all those things because I definitely want to have in-class attendance in two weeks when we come out and we have the lockdown coming out, looking at in two weeks as well on the 23rd. I think it would be fantastic and everybody desires certainty. Certainly understand the parents and the challenges that occur with schools and and making decisions. COVID doesn't allow us certainty right now. Every effort we're trying to make together is to try to provide that certainty, try to provide what we know will happen tomorrow. But unfortunately, when we start to make when we make plans, 
we don't always see what we hope would happen. We don't have, we did not anticipate, and we hope that we wouldn't see the highest number of cases and the highest number of deaths today. And I really want to pause for a minute and, and recognize the loss people have suffered. Many different family members, many different communities, many different friends have lost their loved ones over the past many months, but especially so the number today, not to diminish any of the ones before, but just to recognize that. And so certainty is very difficult within COVID. All of us would strive for that. And, and what we all strive for is the certainty that people think about all of the steps that are taking, think about all of the things that they're doing, think about all of the p- places they go, think about all of the things that they intersect with and people they intersect with, and in all certainty, prevent transmission. That's what we're striving for. That's what we need to look to do. And, and then we can be more certain as to the steps that we'll take in other things. Speaking about the vaccine, uh, we have uh, been actively involved in vaccinating uh, based upon the logistics and based upon the number of vaccines that have been provided to uh, Ontario. And uh, now many hospitals have, have, have begun vaccination and are, and, and are almost uh, pushing towards uh, vaccinating as many uh, long-term care residents, staff, essential caregivers, and those who live in high-risk retirement homes, as well as health care workers. Children were not part of the initial studies but uh, over, over the clinical trials, but over time, there'll be more and more work done to look at children and how vaccination can occur, and hopefully with successful immunization of our older population and those at the greatest risk, that will reduce, uh, contribute to the reduction of illness, and specifically serious illness and mortality. Um, as we we move uh, away from uh, and complete uh, vaccination and immunization of the older population, then we'll move towards those uh, in the younger groups. Next question. Your next question comes from Laura Stone with the Globe and Mail. Please go ahead. Hi, doctors. Um, Dr. Williams, I'd like to know more about um, what you mean by putting up further walls around schools or enhancing the safety measures in schools over the next week or two. Can you be specific here? Are you talking about making class sizes smaller, improving ventilation, increasing testing, asymptomatic testing in schools? What exactly can and are you going to be doing to make schools safer if and when kids return? So in some of those areas there, <clears throat> I know that uh, the minister will probably be making some comments coming up in the next day or two about for what further he is going to do. And so I'm not going to preempt him by what his comments are in some of those areas there. I'm mostly concerned about the idea or the aspect of testing and surveillance uh, in there. As you know, we did change that in the fall uh, a little bit, <clears throat> and we didn't have our testing methodology up as well, as robust as we like. So therefore, some parents were left for a lot. Uh, periods of time in frustration, long lineups to get in to get seen, and even longer to get the test turnaround time. I do not want that to reoccur. And so if we're going to make this a joint partnership with the parents and with uh, others in that, we want to make sure we're going to run a robust program that will give them the information that we need, the information they need, and the information that the system needs to advise and give recommendations and direction on that as we seek to seek to have raise the bar on our surveillance sensitivity, no only with symptomatic uh, children, but we also will be including, of course, others uh, along with that who may be asymptomatic but may be contacts of cases or potential cases. But we have to work how to put that in place. And as you can imagine, when you're dealing with not a few people, you're dealing with a lot of people, and you're going to set up a system, you've got to make sure you set up well because I do not want to frustrate the parents <clears throat> and the students and others with a system that is not ready to uh, respond to the need. So that's why we've got to make sure we have that in place. That's my focus. I know that Minister Lecce has some other announcements to make, but I'll leave that for the minister to make in due time. Follow-up? And earlier this week, the minister released a letter saying that schools would be returning as scheduled, and he, he and the government have repeatedly said that they are safe. So... What has happened in the past three or four days to completely change the course of the government's plans? Is it that these numbers are tied to the holiday gatherings or has something else happened that has caused this 180 in returning schools on Monday? Right. And and I would say the minister and I were in league with that saying we want the schools open. And that was our plan. And as Dr. Heyer alluded to, one thing about viruses, especially this one, one cannot be too confident in what's going to occur. And even a week ago, we were 
saying, okay, once in a while we'll touch over 3,000. I think we'll get this back down shortly. That didn't happen. And here we are at 3,500, and the number of tests coming in are still going the other way. And so one of the aspects, one can't just say, well, let's be reckless. Let's just go ahead and deal with it. One has to be responsive. One has to be responsible. And one has to be reactive uh, to these situations as they arise. And that's only what I think the, uh, I mean, our public health officials and, and the public expect us to do. And so our intentions are there. Like the minister, I'd like the school in its class attendance back again. Our medical officers of health would like it back again. But not in the face of the numbers we're seeing in the last few days and today. And then throw into the mix, we have the influx of some early cases, there may be more, of the UK variant. And how are we going to make sure we're assured, one, it's not there. And if it is there, how are we going to pick it up very quickly if it does occur? So we got to ask ourselves that because as of two weeks ago, we didn't see that. As a week or two weeks ago, Places like the UK, their daily numbers were where we are, two or 3,000. That's a population, twice the population of Canada. And now, within a week and a short time, it just took off uh, with, the, with the UK variant. And they're dealing with very crushing numbers as today. As Dr. Heyer said, one cannot be too presumptive when you're dealing with this. One has to be looking, testing, assessing, and responding to the situation that arises. So... Like the minister, I would have liked to have everybody back in class on Monday. But in fairness and in, in care, we can't do that. We have to defer in-class attendance. Um, uh, the virtual is still open. I know that's a challenge. and we're, They're going to be talking about that. Mr. Lecce has some comments to make on that, I'm sure, in the next few days. Next question. Your next question comes from Sneha Argawal with CBC News. Please go ahead. Thank you for taking my question. Um, Dr. Williams, clearly the numbers have been at record levels for weeks. Why are we only hearing about this extension of virtual learning Thursday before children were set to return on Monday? Well, thank you. <clears throat> and I, I think I alluded to that. Maybe I didn't cover it very clearly. Um, <clears throat> what we had hoped is that in the week of the 4th of January, um, with the incubation period and testing periods, and knowing that uh, before the lockdown was going to be on the 20th, the 6th at midnight and if you go with the 10 to 12 days after that that puts us in this week right now so that as we saw this uh, and the data is indicating there was a lot of uh, congregate type activity in the period before the lockdown date on uh, midnight on uh, boxing day 1201 uh, so <clears throat> i mean what i like to see in the next few days and be proven that the lockdown had worked. It's, uh, it's a soft lockdown, that, and see those numbers start to come cascading down and percent positivity come down, I'd be one of the happiest persons in that. So that's why we delayed till now. That's why we asked that instead of opening up classes on Monday the 4th, we asked to say, could you back then defer and have in-class attendance virtual from the 4th to 11th? That's why schools had never had that before. We're delayed. Minister Lecce had hoped to open up, as the school said, as they typically would have done back on the 4th of January. We delayed a week to see what the data looks like. The data, now we've had this week to look at, and the days it starts to kick into gear would be yesterday and today. The numbers, as Dr. Hires alluded to, are very disappointing. And so that's why we've held on long as we could, because we had hoped we would be able to have some good messaging and say, everybody back to class on Monday. We said for the North, it's okay. For the South, and throughout the South, it's not looking good. And so we have to take some more time to set things in place, to be cautious, to be protective, to get our schools open on, in two weeks from now, in-class attendance, that is, and stay open. So there was a plan? There was a plan that was tied, with the, tied to the lockdown and with the period of time that once the lockdown started, then that would limit transmission, limit the growth of the cases, limit the seriousness of this, allow the hospitals and the public health units to get back uh, greater capacity. And unfortunately, the plan didn't go as was anticipated. And that's what leads to changes, unfortunately, at a time when it is short, uh, close to the end of that particular plan. So this is obviously frustrating for everybody, obviously disappointing for everybody. Uh, but clearly, the numbers keep going up despite the provincial lockdown that's been put in place. Follow-up? Thank you. Uh, we know the government has been working with the NHL to find a way to let the Senators and Leafs play hockey in the upcoming NHL season. 
Ontarians and their children can't play hockey. The lockdown of North Ontario has been extended. Why should the provincial public health workers and officials be dealing with things of this nature, considering the amount of work you have just dealing with the spread of the virus? So it's a good question. We have been <clears throat> looking at this uh, for a period of time now. Um, as you're aware, there has been, uh, you may be aware, there has been extensive conversations between the various, uh, the NHL writ large, uh, the Canadian teams across the country, uh, the various provincial bodies that have NHL teams in their jurisdictions, federal authorities and different ones like that. As you recall in the fall, <clears throat> when we were having rising numbers, uh, there was the, uh, the question of the, uh, sorry, in the spring, the NHL bubble where we had the competition and there was concerns about that. Uh, we asked them to put together a plan and they did a very comprehensive plan, uh, a very, for them, uh, a costly plan that required a lot of resources, a lot of intense testing, a lot of limitations and restrictions on their players to do that, to keep it out there because in a sense, um, well, I know sports fans will say it's sports, it is entertainment. <clears throat> and we have an entertainment business that still is doing some preparation materials with very strict limitations and gatherings and uh, multiple testing at their cost and expense. And so again, the NHL is putting a plan to us to say, uh, can we do this? Because they feel that uh, it would be valuable for the um, entertainment and for Canadians to see. Uh, but they're going to have to put a very comprehensive plan together that does not compromise, one, the health of any Ontarians in this situation, Canadians, other provinces and territories, no travel outside the country. So in that perspective, as well as very strict rules around who's in attendance, who can attend, how it's handled, multiple testing, regular testing, and very strict limitations on players' movements, etc. So we have um, considered this because it is done without compromising the uh, testing capacity of the province, without cost to the, pro to the uh, public in this regard. And so uh, we are... Uh, assessing that at this time. We have not made a final decision. It's getting very close. We know that uh, we've asked our counterparts in Ontario would be Ottawa and Toronto Public Health if they have any concerns or issues. We are still working with our federal counterparts and with my counterparts across the country, the other Chief Medical Officer of Health from the Province of Concern, namely British Columbia, Alberta, Manitoba, ourselves, and Quebec. And so that process is proceeding. It's not yet finalized. And I haven't signed off on it this time. But as I said, it's a program that is very intense and comprehensive and that the uh, organizers, the uh, National Hockey League in the Canadian sector, have stringently looked at um, because it is a, a business venture and they're dealing with large assets and resources and you're dealing with professional players who have much at stake and have put their commitment to the whole process. So all those things considered, I can see why you think there's a dichotomy in the aspect there, but we have to be convinced, I have to be convinced, that it's done with all the points I've made already before I would agree to sign off on it uh, in that. And as I said before, we uh, did the one with the, uh, the bubble, and in spite of people's predictions, uh, we did not have any consequences, and the players stuck to the task as they are, because they are professionals and it is their livelihood and they are business uh, in entities and look after it with that much care. So we'll have to see where it goes and when we get the final approval, we'll be letting people know. Last question. Your final question comes from Rob Ferguson with the Toronto Star. Please go ahead. Hello, doctors. Uh, given your concern about the numbers topping 4,000 and... Uh, how things could go wild if the UK variant comes here. Um, what else are you? Do you think uh, would be a good idea to do uh, to curb the spread? Uh, maybe the lockdown is working, but numbers keep getting higher. Uh, what more could you do? So I've been asking our public health measures table, <clears throat> who will be meeting again to say, okay, what other steps? We're asking our various experts uh, from Public Health Ontario to look at other jurisdictions, what they are and have done. Uh, we're asking our modelers to look at other jurisdictions that have different uh, steps they've taken beyond what we've done to say uh, what is its um, validity, I would say external application in our context. Uh, what could we do here? And uh, in the aspect there, and as Dr. Hires alluded to already, 
while we do have a vaccination uh, program rolling out rapidly at this time, uh, we need another two or three months staying at our task of limiting this growth at this time. We are asking our laboratory people to look at better methods to look at early detection of UK variants. We've had some limitations, and you've seen the announcement by the Premier and ministers with travel and travel testing. So we're trying to uh, lock all those things down to uh, maintain those controls as best we can. And uh, so we're going to be looking at a number of steps uh, to ascertain what has worked, what hasn't worked. And a lot of the issues relate to people's personal behavior. And uh, some of the early uh, information we're receiving is we're not talking about a few percent. We're not going to like a significant amount of people have said, uh, they're, they're not adhering either masking or not adhering to uh, maintain distancing. They're having multiple gatherings of people and not maintaining those distancing while they're in there. And that is concerning, especially if they're congregating. Even worse, we find out with uh, people over the ages of uh, 65 and 70 with comorbidity and really putting people at risk. And these are the ones that uh, a lot of these are filling up our hospitals and our intensive care units. And unfortunately, some are going on to early uh, mortality in that. So we have a, a challenge ahead of us to put that in. So we're going to be looking at that. And I know the Premier and the Minister are looking for further recommendations from us in, in dealing with this matter. Follow-up, and this is the last question. Do you, think a, uh, do you think that curfews work? And how confident are you that Ontario is accurately tracking the UK variant. I'm surprised that it's still only six people because that was the figure we heard on Monday. Um, <clears throat> so you got a two-part question there. Uh, curfew. Uh, we've seen other jurisdictions do it. Um, curfew means different things in different places and different levels. So what is a what would be a curfew? How does it work? We know Quebec is announced. We're, I know our Premier is going to be talking to a Premier Legault and see how they're going to implement it there. Part of the challenge of the curfew is how are you going to enforce a curfew? How are you going to make sure that people are adhering to a curfew? And there's challenges in that. depends on what the constraints are and the legal aspects as well as uh, enforcement tasks and documentation things. So we are. Uh, that's one of the things we will consider. We know that uh, Australia did undertake that in um, the Melbourne area. And other countries have done some. Some have much different social structures than we have. So we're going to look at that uh, as well and to see what they have. That's just one of the tools that are there. You're one about the variant. <clears throat> um, we know that uh, all along we have been looking for variants anyways. So we just didn't start all of a sudden. So in the, I've talked to our, uh, our, our chief medical microbiologist, uh, Dr. Allen, and uh, said during the fall, uh, we've done close to 6,000 tests for genomic sequencing because we want to know how is it changing and altering anyways. And if we did, it was happening already, we would have picked up some. Um, they were very quick because one of the advantages of today's science world is that as soon as the so-called UK variant, the B117, that was shared internationally. So we have the sequencing here, and even now they're trying to look at developing some more specific testing that would allow our PCR testing to look for that in particular. But key to that is, of course, it's linked to travel and travel history, and then Dr. Heiser alluded to with their case contact management. Uh, we want to know if people have had travel, contact with someone who's traveled, especially from the areas of high transmission of the so-called B117, we're also watching for the South African one. And as it goes on, you're getting more and more of these variants showing up because you get more and more transmission to more and more people in different ways. And that's just what coronavirus does. And so we're looking not only for the B117, the South African, we're also looking for any other significant variants. We have been and we'll continue to do that with our laboratory system. And Rob, just thanks for your questions. I think uh, it, it, all of us want to figure out together how can we take additional steps? And it really is all of us working together. So I implore everybody who's on this call to think about ways to communicate the importance of uh, taking steps individually, but also supporting others who are in positions that can't take steps so easily. People who live in different settings where they live with many different people, how to support others, how to support the reduction of transmission across all populations, across all of Ontario, so that we can move together to be able to reduce these numbers to a point that will allow us to work in a more efficient, a more open, and a more uh, socially connected um, 
a, a world in Ontario. Thanks, everyone. And welcome back to The Scoop. In other local news, recipients of the 2020 Mayor's Arts Awards will be announced and recognized at a virtual event on January 18th, 2021 at 7 p.m. It's an event that's open to all members of the public and will be streamed on the city's YouTube channel. The Mayor's Arts Awards is an annual recognition program that celebrates high artistic achievement and recognizes extraordinary contributions in and to the arts in our region. By increasing the profile and appreciation of the arts, the awards enhance the cultural vitality and civic identity of Kingston. Danica Lockheed, Manager, Arts and Sector Development for the City of Kingston, stated that the arts have the power to bring us together as a community, and in this unprecedented time, it's even more crucial to be supporting and celebrating our arts sector. She further stated the awards program is now in its fourth year and that the city is very happy that they are able to continue to recognize individual artists, arts organizations, and arts supporters and volunteers and their contributions to the cultural vitality of Kingston. In a normal year, recipients are announced at a public event held on a Monday evening in early December. The event is the day before a council meeting, and the recipients also attend the beginning of council to receive their certificates. But due to the restrictions resulting from COVID-19, the program has adapted to safely acknowledge this year's recipients in another form. So again, that virtual event takes place on January 18th via the city's YouTube channel. On January 7th, Kingston residents will notice a new billboard with public artwork at the intersection of Princess and Division Streets. The billboard is part of the Hub Project and features poetry-based artworks from January to September 2021. The first installation features a poem written by the city's poet laureate, Jason Aru, and designed by local illustrator Grace Sylvester. The poem was written in response to the themes for public art in the area identified through a public consultation process. The current artwork will be in place until March 2021, at which time a new poetry-based piece will be installed and the participating poets will be selected by Aru. The Hub Project is a multi-phase initiative designed to connect neighborhoods through art by making a series of temporary and permanent improvements to the intersection of Division and Princess Streets, known as the Hub. This project is part of the City of Kingston's public art program that supports the creation of permanent, temporary, and community public artworks and projects. In March 2020, the city issued a call to artists through a request for qualifications for the Princess Street Sidewalk Project, a permanent public art intervention for the hub. A jury selected and shortlisted three artists to submit proposals for this project. The artists were Christine DeWanker, Don Maynard, and Brandon Vickard. From January 18th to February 5th, residents will be invited to view the artist's preliminary proposals and provide their feedback on Get Involved Kingston. This feedback will be provided to the artists who will consider it as they prepare their final proposals. This is the second round of public consultation related to the Hub project and follows a series of in-person sessions and online opportunities facilitated through Get Involved Kingston in 2018. The city heard from 350 people who shared input and ideas regarding themes and the types of public art that would be integrated into the intersection at Princess and Division Streets. Another permanent public artwork slated for installation in the hub also includes two artist-designed bike stands. These bike stands are intended to be playful, adding vibrancy and color to the area and generating new ways of thinking about the urban environment and street furniture. Through an open call for submissions, local emerging contemporary artist Jenny Mooring and her designs were selected for the project by the city's public art working group. Both the Princess Street sidewalk project and art bike stands will be installed by the end of summer 2021. As well, on January 7th, Kingston's Poet Laureate Jason Aru released a new poem marking the beginning of the 2021 new year. Aru's poem, Civil Twilight, is inspired by the question, where do we go from here, and aims to reflect the current collective experience and offer hope for the future. Danica Lockheed, Manager Arts and Sector Development for the City of Kingston, says that poetry and the written word can help us make sense of what's happening in our communities and the world as we face the winter season and are in the middle of another lockdown. And Jason's poem aims to inspire us and capture this particular moment in time. 
2020 was the second year of Aru's four-year term as Poet Laureate. The Poet Laureate functions as the spokesperson for literary arts within the community, increases awareness of Kingston as a center of writing excellence, fosters creative writing in and about Kingston, and attends both community and city-led events across the community to promote and attract people to the literary world and enhance the profile of the literary arts within the city and beyond. Throughout 2020, Aru continued to celebrate the contributions of poetry and literary arts to life in Kingston and nurture creative writing locally. He wrote seven original poems, three for the city of Kingston and four through community partnerships, hosted seven workshops and mentorship sessions, represented the city at five events and initiated a poetry in time in the time of a pandemic project that commissioned local poets to write poems to respond to the experience of life during the pandemic. And now time for a traffic update. Motorists can expect delays at Glengarry Road from Portsmouth to Indian for possible lane closures as a contractor continues working on behalf of Utilities Kingston installing a new sanitary sewer and upgrades to the water mains uh, there. On Grenadier Drive at Winfield Crescent, motorists can expect delays while construction takes place around the Kingston East Community Centre. Flag people will be on site to direct traffic. There can also be delays expected at Highway 15 north of Sand Hill uh, due to lane closures until November 2021 as crews replace a culvert. There are also delays expected at Highway 33 east of Collins Creek Bridge to the west of Coronation Boulevard, also at Jackson Mills Road near the KP Trail. Also, John Counter Boulevard from Princess to Indian. Delays can be expected until the summer of 2021 while crews complete turtle fencing and water main work. Some sidewalk impacts that are also expected are at Grenadier Drive and Winfield Crescent, where the sidewalk on the south side of Grenadier Drive may be restricted weekdays from 7 till 5 p.m. A flagger will be on site to direct traffic and also assist pedestrians. There are also sidewalk impacts at Kings Court Avenue from 1st to 3rd and west on the west sidewalk, which will be closed to pedestrian traffic until further notice to allow the developer to access building lots and complete connections to municipal infrastructure. Please use the east sidewalk and follow posted pedestrian detours. listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, Ontario at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples. The CFRC Podcast Network at podcast.cfrc.ca is brought to you by the generous support of the Queen's University Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences. 